Last week we covered uh, biblical theology, which was a little more broad in its uh, application. And today we're going to narrow down some and begin to deal with uh, the actual idea of Christ in the Old Testament. You have an outline. Uh, there's a little bit of information on the back, basically some resources, the one I pointed you to here, and then also uh, a little bit left in the outline there. Um, so before we get started, let's uh, go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll begin the class. Father in heaven, we praise your name for the magnificent scripture which you have given us by your revelation. And it is a revelation of yourself. Lord, in your word we find all that is necessary for life. And uh, that, be, that being both eternal life and our daily living. Um, now that we have come into your kingdom through the blood of your son, we live even now looking for eternity and living as if eternity and because eternity is in our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see the magnificent jewels that are to be mined from the Old Testament, particularly the jewels which point us directly to you. Help us to be faithful to your word, but at the same time not to be afraid to approach your word with a real hunger and a desire to know you. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. Uh, hopefully, as we go through this, uh, this class will help build some confidence in how we go into the Old Testament Scriptures, treat them faithfully, and yet then move forward and see Christ in the Old Testament. One of the problems we have when we look at the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is often we struggle to find a unity. We, we get so focused on the trees, and you've heard the statement before, we miss the forest. Yeah, we get, we get real, we, especially people of our stripe, get very focused in on the particulars. Words, word studies, tenses of verbs, nouns, uh, even get narrowed down into small frame looks at, at one verse here or one verse there, a chapter here, a chapter there. And before long, we've done something known as atomizing, Adam, not A-D-A-M, but A-T-O-M, atomizing the text, which means to break it down to a very small uh, pericope, a very small uh, field of study, and take it out of its context. You cut that small verse or one or two verses or chapter away from the whole Bible, and you get too narrowly focused, and you miss the point of the writer. You miss the intent of the Scripture. I do it in my own study. I'm sure you've experienced that. Or maybe you've experienced the phenomena that's also common. You get done with a chapter and you think, you get done studying and you think, what does that have to do with anything? I don't even know what that's about, you know. I've been there. I've, fe I've felt that frustration. That is not uncommon to students of the Bible. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is we're dealing often, if we're talking about the Old Testament, we're dealing with culture and languages and people groups that don't exist in our world today. I mean, you start dealing with all the ites in the Old Testament and you can't find them anywhere, right, in our world. Their culture is buried under layers of dirt even in the, in the, new, in the, in the uh, promised land. If you went to the promised land, that only in the places where we've dug archaeologically can we see these cultures of the ancient world. And the world, that, the world that exists now is much different from the world that was then. And so 
the language, the culture, the, the history is buried literally and figuratively to us. It's hard. It's very difficult. So you get in the Old Testament, that's one of the blocks for us understanding what's going on. Often beyond that, there's the struggle to understand because it's prior to the cross. We're post the cross, and therefore when we look back, sometimes we struggle to see the Old Testament as a meaningful document to us. It's easy for us Christians to fall into the mindset of the many times the secular world, which is that Christianity is this, and you'll hear me say this in the sermon today, the misconception often, even in the church, is Christianity is this new religion that pops on the scene in the year about 2,000 years ago, about the age of 33 A.D., as if there was no prequel to it. There was no setup. There was no foundation laid. It's just as if Christ, like an alien, fell down out of heaven, and boom, this new sect arises. And, and that's definitely not the case, but that's the way we feel when we're studying a lot of times in the Old Testament. And so I think one of the ways that we can, we can help ourselves in the study is to try to come away with some themes, a theme, a thematic approach to looking at the Old Testament to help us build a grid to hang this particular verses and chapters and stories on the grid. To keep them together in a unity, moving somewhere. One of the great things about literature, and the Bible is literature, one of the great things about literature is literature has movement. Would you agree with that? I mean, great literature has movement. You ever been in a book, you read eight chapters, and you think we've gone nowhere? Now, that's why you find it in the free bookshelf in the, in the antiquated bookstores. Because it wasn't good literature. It was awful in its, in its formation. The Bible is not that way. The Bible is well, well thought of in the circles of literature, even secular schools. The Bible is well thought of as a piece of literature because it is beautifully written. And anybody who's ever spent any time reading, even the most difficult, we often poke fun about Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all these things and how hard they are. But if you read them, critically looking at them as is this good or is it bad you think man we've got movement here this story is headed somewhere obviously now we don't always agree with where it's headed with the world but they even see it as great literature literature has movement and so the reason it has movement is it has a structure thought out by the author both the human author in scripture and the and the divine author the holy spirit had a structure in mind a superstructure in a mind like a highway that's driving the reader to a destination. What is the destination? Christ. Right? Spurgeon used to say, Can it not be known that from every hamlet and village in England there is a road to London? Right? That's what, that was what he said. All roads lead to London in the, in the aisles. They all go to London. Now, the interesting thing is, if you, and I haven't been there, but talk, it had to depend on people that have traveled the world in some, some senses. But if you spend any time in England, I'm told, not only will you find one way to London from each hamlet, but generally two, three, and sometimes four ways to get to London. And they go by various routes. Long routes, short routes, scenic routes. Routes through other villages, routes to bypass other villages, but they're all headed to Rome. So 
if we use that analogy which Spurgeon used and put it onto the Bible, we say all roads lead to Christ. All, all roads eventually, somewhere in Esther, somewhere in Deuteronomy, somewhere in Leviticus, there is a highway. At least one, sometimes three, sometimes four. I'm going to say sometimes seven different ways that you can get on that highway and go to Christ. Legitimate ways to get there. And that's what we're looking for. Uh, and, and, and Spurgeon said, he went further to say, to finish his quote, if I were to find that there were not a road from each text in the Bible to Christ, I would then jump over every hedge and ditch by ways to get to him. The problem with Spurgeon, please understand I love him, the problem with Spurgeon is I think he spent too much time in the hedge and ditch when it wasn't necessary. There are legitimate roads from the Bible verses of the Old Testament, the stories of the Old Testament, to Christ. And sometimes Spurgeon, as great as he was, he wasn't a great exegete. In other words, he, did, he was not very disciplined in studying the text. He was a great theologian, a great theological mind. He wasn't very good in the text. And so he would get frustrated knowing the right answer. He would get frustrated. He wouldn't work the text to get there legitimately. He would just say, it's... I mean, I'm just pretending now. It's Saturday. i got to get there by in the morning, so let's just jump the hedge and run to Christ. He does that a lot. And therefore, his sermons sometimes lack power as you read them, though God bless the man. Because, and I want to put this out there, because even when you get stuck and you can't find the legitimate way, and I would say this with almost confidence, but you've put blood, sweat, and tears, and toil into finding Christ in the text, God rewards that study. God rewards that study. God will bless that, uh, even though there may be better ways, okay? There may be very, very much better ways. So let's do some of this theme work. Let's think about the Old Testament and the way it's structured. One way we can see it is through the eyes of the kingdom of God. We can see the Old Testament through the eyes of the kingdom of God. And that kingdom doesn't begin somewhere in the book of Chronicles or Samuel, but rather in Genesis, because to have a kingdom, there are some elements you must have. First, you must have a king. Second, you must have subjects. Third, you must have a place, location. And finally, you must have rule of law. All right? To have any kingdom, you've got to have those things. That's very basic and primary. So we can see that the kingdom of God is established on the earth for the first time where? Think with me. King would be God. Location is what we're looking for. So on the very first pages of the Bible, are there subjects to the king? Who? Adam and Eve. Is there a law from the king? Absolutely. What is it? You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Sounds a lot like a law to me, doesn't it to you? Sounds like it to me. And is there a place? Certainly there's a place. What's the place? The Garden of Eden. The first appearance of a kingdom in the Bible, though the word kingdom is not used, is a garden. And there's a very good reason for that. But the, the kingdom first appears to us in the garden. And the king is God. He is the sovereign. He has subjects, Adam and Eve. He has a rule of law and he has a place. It's the Garden of Eden. But was the world fully under the reign of God at that time? No. 
Absolutely not. How do we know that? What's the clue of the text that tells us the whole world wasn't like Eden? What does he command them to do? Be fruitful, multiply, and do what? Fill the earth, subdue it. The kingdom was a very progressed society in the garden. But its boundaries were definite. Outside of that garden, we might call it the wild, wild west. And man's job as co-regent with God was to rule over all of the created earth. To rule it over. To make the garden expand, as the psalmist tells us, that God's glory might shine from shore to shore. That was the picture of the first, the commands of the garden. But that's, that's not where it ends, is it? Because we find that man doesn't do so well in this kingdom, does he? What happens? Does he, does he fulfill the purpose or not? Come on, wake up, answer. No, why doesn't he fulfill it? What does he do? He disobeys. Simple as we teach our children. God said don't do, and they did. And they died. And what is death? Separation from God. They are cut off from their king. They are disobedient subjects. They deserve the death penalty. Right? And so we have the fall, what's known as the fall. But God, instead of executing them, Extends his grace. He extends his grace. And we see here that though man is a failure, God will not fail. It's a, it's a ringing truth of, throughout this Old Testament scripture that though man fails, God will not fail. God will not change his mind. God will not turn back on his purpose. And so he extends grace by saying to them, though you have sinned and you are cursed, I will cover you. I will sacrifice something in your place, an animal. We're not told specifically what that animal is. But we know that he kills an animal. What a horrific scene for our first parents. Having never seen death, having never experienced bloodshed, to see God cut the throat and skin the animal. I don't know if you've ever witnessed that. I've done it as a hunter I have done it. I have hung an animal up and skinned it from tail to nose. It is a bloody mess. There is a very vivid picture being painted. Yes, God is gracious, but His grace costs. There can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. It's being taught to us from the very beginning of outlining this kingdom. For us. So you have the kingdom, you have the fall, you have the grace of God extended. So what happens? What happens is that the kingdom of God doesn't disappear as we might expect. Man is not destroyed. God doesn't take his toys and go back to heaven and say, I'm satisfied with just being by myself. But rather he continues to send forth this kingdom in progressive waves to his subjects. We see this kingdom reappear to to Abraham. The promise of this kingdom is given to Abraham. In, in the covenant made with Abraham. It's built off of the Genesis account, it, of Genesis 1 through 3. What Abraham hears from God is not distinct in, 
in its basis from what God told Adam and Eve. Is there a king in this promise in Genesis 12? Absolutely. His name is God. Jehovah. What is, what is beyond that? Who is his subject? In Genesis 12 account, who is the subject? Who is the one who sits under God's rulership? Abraham and his descendants. Right? Is there a land for this kingdom? Absolutely. Now, it's not given to us specifically in its boundaries in Genesis 12, but yet as we go through the Scripture, Genesis 15, 17, 22, they detail for us the very specific boundaries of the land that will be the kingdom of God on the earth. The new, we might say, Garden of Eden. Have you ever scratched your head at the description of the promised land in the Old Testament? Sounds a lot like when you describe the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? A land that multiplies its fruit beyond any comparison around it. A land that flows literally with milk and honey. A land where the people grow to extraordinary heights and can do extraordinary things. It is a very progressed civilization, even more progressed than any of the civilizations around it. The promised land is described as a beacon to the whole world of the light of God in the Old Testament. From beginning to end, that's the way from Genesis 12 to Malachi, we're going to see that this land that is described for us in the count of Genesis, this kingdom is a beautiful kingdom. All right? And it has definite king, definite subjects, and it has a law. Abraham doesn't so much hear the law, he hears the promise. But we have to remember that Moses received the law. From Abraham to Moses, it's very clear that the law, the law is developed clearly and given to the people of Israel. So Adam and Eve were subjects or servants of God. And now Abraham and the people of Israel are the servants of God. They are the subjects. But it doesn't end there with Moses. But we have the development of a great nation of Israel from Moses to David, the first, the first great king. Not the first king, but the first great king of the people of Israel. Who will be the king that rules the kingdom? The, the whole of that land, by the end of David's reign, the beginning of Solomon's reign, is subdued and under the rulership of the throne of Jerusalem. It doesn't stay there long, but it's there. Right? God fulfills his promise. God keeps his word. And so then from David to Solomon into the prophets, we see then the punishment of the people as they continually break the law and fail. Just as Adam failed, so Israel failed in her submission and her obedience to God. And the Old Testament ends with the promise of the kingdom hanging its intention. You can almost hear an audible mourning of the people as we close Malachi. And 400 years is going to pass with no new word of what God's doing. Okay? So if we just structure the Old Testament, we'll stop there. With the idea of the kingdom, we can do that very easily. And what that helps us do is when we're in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, if we're thinking as just tight, Scoped only 2 Chronicles chapter 2. We're easy to take that out of context and misuse it. 
But if we back up in our thinking and think, now where is this on the idea of God's kingdom? Where does this fit? We get a better grasp of what God is actually doing, the writer is actually doing. We not, not that we can't look tight, but we, before we present it, we have to back up and look at the whole again. Okay? So when we look at the battle of David with Goliath, we don't just want to focus on slingshot stones, a big man and a small man. We want to focus on God's redemption, God's protection, God's progression of his kingdom. That's a very significant event in the life of Israel. Because their greatest opponent is the Philistines. And God symbolically defeats that whole nation in one story. With one servant, David. Right? And God is the hero. He slays the giant. The people are given great success then in the land. So, that's one way. Let's quickly look at another way. That's not the only way. We can look at the kingdom, the kingdom structure, but we can also look at the covenant structure of the Bible, of the Old Testament. The covenant of works as it's presented to man in the Garden of Eden. We see the covenant with man made by God. You shall not eat of the covenant, I mean, of the tree in the center of the garden. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God is striking up the language of a covenant. All right? And, and uh, we're going to move a little quicker through this one because there's a lot of information about how we prepare to teach or study further in this. Adam breaks that covenant. He cannot keep the covenant of works. And so God institutes or reveals to us the next step, which is the covenant of grace. And in reality, all of the rest of the scripture falls underneath that large framework of the covenant of grace. From the garden forward, God deals with man on the basis of grace, not works. The only person in the Bible beyond Adam who is tested according to his work is who? Jesus Christ himself. Why? Because he's the second Adam. Everybody else in the Bible better hope God's not counting our works. Right? Because we have no hope if he does. If God counts our sin, who can stand? That's the, that's the scripture's word on it. So the covenant of works is broken in the garden. Man can no longer keep this covenant with God. So God further reveals his plan for mankind in the covenant of grace. And the beauty of the covenant of grace is its, di its diverse aspects. It's all one covenant, but it's detailed to us differently. And it's done through the covenant with Noah. In Genesis chapter 9, we see that God reestablishes the covenant with Noah that he had prior to Noah with Adam. He's reconfir reconfirming the covenant of grace. I won't destroy the land again and all that moves on it with water. The rainbow is in the sky. You can count on my word. I will keep it. Okay? Then it moves to the covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Abraham. I will bless you and you shall be a blessing to all the nations is the promise of the covenant. God is reconfirming the covenant he already has with man in the covenant of grace. How does he do it? A very bloody show. He cuts animals in half, lays them to the side, walks through the midst of them as a, as a burning torch. He walks through the middle and he, he, he brings Abraham along in the revelation of what the covenant of grace looks like. Okay, then 
uh, we see in, that's in uh, Genesis 12, 15, 17, and then in, ver in chapter 22, we see this covenant of Abraham really laid forward, the covenant of promise, some call it. Then the covenant with Moses, Exodus 3, and then Exodus 19 through 20, we see that God, his servant is Moses, and he, he brings him along in the understanding of grace. The law is grace. The law is not works. Here's where a mistake is often made in understanding the Old Testament. People tie the, the, the laws given to Moses to this covenant of works with Adam. And they see it as Israel was earning their salvation by keeping the law. That's a grave error and will cause you to misinterpret everything in the Old Testament. What we must understand is what God says in Exodus 19 leading up to giving them the law at the mountain. He tells Moses, you are my people. I redeemed you and you are in a relationship with me. Therefore, you shall have no other God before you except me. You shall not make graven images and worship them, but only worship me. The law is a response of a God already in a relationship with his people. And what is that relationship based on? The covenant of grace, not the covenant of works. Israel was not earning her salvation. That was the mistake of her leaders, but that was not God's mistake. God was very clear. Go read Exodus 19. It's convicting. 19 and 20 will tell you God did not establish his relationship with his people based on what they would do, but rather on what he already accomplished. And then he gives them the details of how they live in fellowship with him. It's like I tell my children. I'm your father. I will always be your father. And I will always love you. If you want to live peacefully in my home. These are the things that will occur. And these things will not occur. If they choose not to follow that. We're going to have some bumpy roads ahead. And eventually they may choose like Israel. To go their own way. Uh, that would be a sad day. But they may. Because relationship requires standards. If not, everybody gets hurt. Okay, so that's what the law of Moses is. It's not reverting back to works. It's based in grace, a gift. But he reaffirms his covenant of grace with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and then again with David, Solomon, 2 Samuel, chapter 7, one of those crucial texts in the Old Testament. The kingdom is set up. The temple is built. The dedication is occurring. And God makes a great promise. And that promise is that the son of David shall sit on this throne Forever. And the, and the gift of the promise is continued on. The promise of the covenant of grace. So, in this structure, looking at it from a covenant perspective, we end without the promise being fulfilled. We get to the end of the Old Testament and it's not over. It's hanging again. Now, what I've done is detail two themes kingdom, covenant, in the Old Testament that you can use to wrap your mind around the Old Testament as you're studying. You're over there in Deuteronomy. You need to back up and look. What covenant are we under? The covenant of grace. And what subtopic are we looking at? This is particularly the covenant of Moses, the, the Mosaic covenant. And now we, can, now we can deal rightly with these scriptures, keeping them in their context. If we get too tight in our view, we miss it. And we start making lots of interpretive mistakes. So we want to keep that. You're going to notice we, we, want to, we want to zone in and then move back out. And zone in and move back out as we're studying. We want to oscillate between the near and the far. The near and the far. That helps us stay on track. Okay? All right. 
So how can we then, having this idea of a structure, how can we then, and you notice I have assumed, as I taught last week, that we have a biblical theology and the Bible is united. Its message is one. It's distinct. It's clear. It's always the same. Okay? There is great unity in the Bible. Not disunity. Not fragmentation. So, the proper interpretation of the Old Testament, as we look through a lens of the Christocentric method, how then will we, as a student, as a teacher, look at the Bible and come to a right conclusion talking about Christ-centeredness? How will we do that? Well, first of all, we'll need to study the specific text. If you're going to teach... Uh, in a class to your children, or even just in your own private study, if you're going to teach the story found in 1 Samuel 16, 17, you've got to study that story in its original setting. Okay? Then, then you can move, and only then you can move, to a more broad look at the, the setting as opposed to the book. Or the place it is on the grid or the line of redemptive history. Where are we? You back up. You got the close and then the far. The near, the far. You study first the text. Then you back away from the text after you've studied the pieces and parts of the text. And look, where is this on the timeline of the Old Testament? Where are we at? Okay? That's two steps to help us stay in line with the good interpretation. Next, the student will look at the rest of the Bible. Now that you've backed away and looked at where you are specifically, now you can look forward and backwards on the line of redemptive history and understand the whole, this text in context of the whole Bible. Have you ever finished studying and even come to conclusions and let years later thought, man, this was so bad wrong. <laughs> I missed it. I was, so, I was way out in left field. That usually happens because you've continued to study the Bible and the Bible has witnessed to the weakness of your interpretation. That's usually what's happened. And so you can save a lot of pain and misery by looking at the whole Bible as you're studying it. Before you start making grand revelations about what God has said, look at, make sure it agrees with the rest of the Bible. If you inter interpret the flood in a way that Peter does not interpret it, guess who's right and who's wrong? See, the Catholic Church could have saved themselves a lot of pain had they done this. Had they looked at the whole of the Bible and seen that what Peter relates the flood to is not what they related the flood to. What Peter relates the ark to is not what they thought the ark was all about. You know, they missed Christ and thought it was the church. And so you can see why they say if you're not a Catholic in their church, which is the ark, you die in the flood. When Peter said just the opposite, he said, the ark is Christ. If you're not in Christ, you drowned. That was what, that's the way Peter understood the ark. So see, they just messed up. They got tightly focused. They came up with this great interpretation. I can imagine some monk in a, some monastery closed off from the rest of the world, and he had his aha moment, and he celebrated, and he wrote it down, and years later somebody picked it up and said, oh, this is good stuff right here. We can get some indulgence money out of this teaching. Let's do it. And here we go. We missed the whole point, right? And we can make fun of them, but we do it as Protestants too. We do it as Protestants also. So 
once we've looked at the specific, we back up and see where we are on the redemptive grid. How does this fit? And then, how does it fit in the whole Bible? How does it come together? Make sure I'm not contradicting anything else. Now, we start bringing in the redemptive, uh, after we've looked at camp, the redemptive historical element of the text. And finally, we're going we're to find a particular uh, path, a legitimate road from our hamlet in Deuteronomy, our little, our little conclave in Deuteronomy. We're going to find the road that leads to our London, which is Jesus. And how, how we do that is going to make all the difference. So once you've prepared an outline based on the basis of the text, you're going to prepare a, a redemptive historical outline which includes walking to Christ. And this is where we'll spend the remainder of our time. There are seven, at least seven, legitimate ways from any text in the Old or New Testament to Christ. Seven legitimate pathways. Okay? The first one is called redemptive historical fulfill, uh, progression. Redemptive historical progression. Now let me illustrate what I mean by that. The Bible tells us a story of creation, fall, uh, and redemption, and finally, new creation. The whole Bible, here's another one of those themes, the whole Bible is the story of creation, man's fall, God's redemption, new creation. The Bible, it has been said, is one of the few books that has a beginning, a middle, and a beginning. There is no end in the Bible. You ever gotten to Revelation 22 and started looking in the index for chapter 23? Because you want to hear the rest of the story, right? And God's a great writer. He did this. Man, we want to know more about the new creation he leaves us hungry for it. But he doesn't tell us all the details. He, he stops. So we got this new beginning. Another way, just for those who, and I'm not a, uh, this comes from Sidney Gradonis. Another way we might illustrate this is to write creation. This is how the Bible works. And new creation out here funneling down funneling back the Bible's moving this way narrowing, narrowing, narrowing narrowing and what we see in this first this is the Old Testament Okay, this megaphone is the Old Testament God's work of redemption in Israel This is the Old Testament. God's work of redemption in Israel. But the mistake so many make is they get stuck on that and they don't see that it's narrowing down. They take Israel's history as if God was writing a book for history's sake, not for His sake. The whole point of the Old Testament is it is a true history of events and accounts of how God has dealt with the world, particularly His people Israel, and it narrows down to God's 
redemptive work in Christ. We don't need an Old Testament and it has no more significance to us than the book of the histories of the chronicles of the Philistines unless it's taking us to the cross. Without the cross, the Old Testament is just another account of ancient history. What makes it distinct from all other histories is it has a purpose. And that is it is preparing for us to see on center stage one man, Jesus Christ, in whom all of the Old Testament is fulfilled. You can't find that in Hittite history. It, it doesn't exist. Their history is a sad history. They end up getting destroyed. Yes, um, it's not really germane here, but it's why I believe in a literal Adam, a real Adam, and Eve, a real creation. If you, if you lose those things, you lose the, the, the reality of, if you lose the history, you lose the reality of the promise and the coming of the Christ. You have to have a real Adam. He can't just be some symbolic group of men out there, as some are trying to make him. But the New Testament then is God's redemptive work in the history of the church and world. And so, coming from Christ, we begin to go out from Christ, one man wide. Now at this point, 2000, almost 2,000 years later, we're very wide. The church is widespread. God's working in redemptive ways all over the globe. And we're headed to a new creation. This is a way we can see the Bible. It all pointing back to Christ here. So what we do in redemptive historical progression, when we're, when we're in a text in the Old Testament and we're looking, we're, we're here and we're, we're looking, how do we get here? We follow the grid of history. We just, we just get in the flow and follow it to Christ. It's a foundational way to preach Christ from the Old Testament. Redemptive history is God-centered. First of all, it's God-centered. Second of all, it's unified. Redemptive history is God-centered and it is unified. So it's not, it's not fragmented. It's unified. We might say on the bottom level of redemptive history, the very base down here is a personal story a real personal story, like the story of Jonah. Was Jonah a real man, swallowed by a real fish? Absolutely. And you can read the book of Jonah, and you can see a personal story. But is that all the book of Jonah is? No. The book, the book gives to us, growing up from it, a national story. That's the mid-level. A national story. The national story of Israel. 
So we look at the book of Jonah and we see the personal story of Jonah the man. That's a legitimate thing to understand and look at. We need to know that. He's real. He's really existed. Know all about him. How does that play into the history of Israel, though? Because he was a prophet from the nation of Israel, right? He went and prophesied to that great city, and what happened? She repented. She continued to exist. God redeemed her and saved her. And Jonah cried like a baby. But outside and overarching all of this, we might say, I'm a terrible artist again, but the, the, the environment around these two things, the top level, this, this is the story of, of, of the history of redemption. The top level is redemptive history. What we really want to know from the text is not just that Jonah was real, not how he particularly played into the nation's history in Israel. We need those things, but that's not the end. We ultimately want to know what does he do in the redemptive history of God. Now, Jonah's an easy one. You might not think so, but he is. Why? Because as we follow the train of redemptive history, and we go through Jonah, and we end up through the end of the Old Testament, and we move into the life of Christ... What does Christ do? Christ takes the literal man Jonah and says, one greater than Jonah is with you. And I shall not be known to you by any other sign but by the sign of who? Of Jonah. The Son of Man shall be in the ground for three days but on the third day shall rise again. Ah, but if we don't follow the train of redemptive history, we end up with a story about a man in the Middle East somewhere who got swallowed by a fish. Or we end up with, it's another strata in the history of the nation of Israel. That's good, but that's not enough. Why did God put Jonah on the earth, and what did he ultimately accomplish? He was a type of Christ. We don't get there unless we follow redemptive history out. Unless we follow the trail of God's history. How he's redeeming his people. We keep working down to this redemptive work of Christ. Second legitimate highway from any text in the Old Testament, possibly into the Christ-centeredness, is promise fulfillment. Promise fulfillment. This is Edmund Clowney's favorite way. And uh, sometimes I think he stretches a little. Edmund was, Edmund, Dr. Clowney was uh, a great teacher at Westminster, a tremendous preacher of God's Word. But sometimes he got a little far-fetched. It happens. What, but what is it about this promise fulfillment? Well, you have a pr in, this, in this highway, you have a promise of the Old Testament that's fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. Give me one promise that was given in the Old Testament that Christ fulfills. The what? Isaiah 53. The suffering servant. There's a prophecy made there of the fact that he will grow up and he will be crushed by God under the weight of the, of the sacrifice made for our sin, transgressions. But that's not going to come true in Isaiah's day. That, the Old Testament closes out and that's not finished. That's not fulfilled. But we go further and look, where is it fulfilled? At Golgotha, in the man Jesus Christ, on the cross, being crushed. So the promise was fulfilled. Well, we might call, talk about another promise, the promise to Abraham. Through your offspring, through your offspring shall I bless. 
right? Who is the offspring? Well, it looks at first glance, glance that it's Isaac. But then Isaac, it doesn't fulfill it, and Jacob doesn't fulfill it, and Jacob's 12 sons don't fully fulfill or fill up. It has to continue on until you come to the man Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, the whole world is blessed through the promised offspring of Abraham. That's why Matthew 1 exists and the genealogy from Abraham to Jesus is given. He's the son of Abraham. He's the offspring. Right? And so, one thing we see in that promise, that particular promise, is that it's filled up progressively or gradually. It doesn't happen, boom, all of a sudden. Right? God promised Abraham his offspring would be the blessing to the whole world. Did it happen the next day? No. Did it happen the next year? Absolutely not. Did it happen when Isaac was born? No, it didn't happen when Isaac was born. It went on for thousands of years being filled up. Closer and closer we come to Christ, the more the promise is being made real, tangible. You can taste it until Christ comes on the scene. Okay? So it's another way. You can be preaching about Genesis chapter 12 and you can, you can incorporate Christ by going from that, how did God fulfill this promise? Ask the question and begin to answer it. He gave Isaac, not Ishmael. But is that the end of the promise? No, that's just the first step on the journey. Then Isaac has Jacob and God chooses him, not Esau. But that's not the end of the journey. He has 12 sons. And from those 12 sons, 12 great tribes. And from those great tribes, one great king, David and Solomon. And then into the New Testament in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate son of Abraham. Right? Legitimate way to move. You can't find it in every text. That's why we have seven of them. But it's a very important step. It's filled up progressively, and the promise of the Old Testament, when you're finding it, you move from the Old Testament to Christ, and then back through the Old Testament to your original text that you're studying. That keeps you to make sure you're inside that road, and you haven't misstepped somewhere. Because we're prone to misstep. We're prone to make mistakes. Okay? Third way, and this one gets a lot of fanfare, a third legitimate way to go from the Old Testament text to Christ is typology. Much confused in our day with typologizing. Much confused in our day with allegory. Okay? We don't want that mistake made. So here's some things we need to know. First of all, a type, a type in typology is limited to discovering specific analogies along the line of redemptive history that are revealed in, in Scripture. It's a specific analogy that's revealed in history through the Scripture. Okay? It is a person, an event, or an institution in the Old Testament that helps us or prefigures for us the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a person, an event, or an institution that's in the Old Testament, and it's really there, and it is historical, and it shows us Christ. It prefigures for us Christ. And we find its ultimate antitype in Christ. Okay? This is a legitimate way to teach the Old Testament, to move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Let me give you the rules, though, because here's, I don't want you to make the mistakes that are often made. 
First of all, a type is historical. It is historical. Secondly, it is God-centered. A type is God-centered. Third, it is significant. What do I mean by that? Much hay has been made in Genesis 22. Because people see that there is a legitimate link, it's obvious, between what's going on in that text and what will happen at Golgotha. Abraham has been told to sacrifice his one and only son, and he takes him up the mountain, and, he sa- and he's going to sacrifice him, right? And everybody said, what it, I mean, it doesn't take a genius, does it? Everybody says, well, that looks like Jesus going up to be crucified. But then they make the mistake. They begin to say, some of your famous preachers will do this. This one's, this one's uh, well used. The wood on Isaac's back tells us that the cross was wooden. And the ropes that were used to bind him were the sins of the people. And the flame which was present represents the wrath of God. We, we've gone from type we've gone to allegory now that's not legitimate we do not want to do that okay what can we say about Genesis 22 we can say that God required or tested Abraham's faithfulness by requiring the sacrifice of his son and Abraham was found faithful The type is Abraham and Isaac and the test that's going on. They're going to the mountain, the sacrifice. It's a three-day journey. It's not an overnight thing. It's well thought out. Abraham goes in faith, we're told in Hebrews, to the mountain, believing that even if he kills his son, God will raise him from the dead. That's what Hebrews tells us, right? Now, how do we see that as a type? We move to the New Testament we see that God requires a test of Jesus calling him to be sacrificed, giving his own son. And God passes the test because he dies on that cross for the sins of his people. This is a safe type. The type is this little picture And the antitype is Jesus Christ, and it's bigger than life. So we don't drop down to detailing little things about the text. That's dangerous. That's that's allegory. That's out of bounds. Only the Apostle Paul is allowed to do that. (laughs) And that's because God told him to. But don't make that mistake. It has to be historical, has to be God-centered, has to be significant. It has to finally be an escalation. There has to be something from the small to the big. Jesus is always bigger than the picture in the Old Testament. And the problem that so many have uh, with the Old Testament is they're still looking at the picture as if that's the end instead of looking through the picture. Seeing the picture, let's put it this way, a man goes off to war, his wife gives him what? To keep in his chest pocket. A picture, right? 
a picture. He sticks it in his pocket. And at night, he lays wherever he finds a place to lay his head, and he pulls that picture out, and he looks at it, and he remembers what he left to go fight. Gives him hope. Gives him something to fight for, to stay alive for, to go home for. It's a picture. The man finishes his tour of duty and comes back home. He gets off his boat. He disembarks, and his wife is standing there, fully dressed, beautiful, beaming, smells good. What would you think of that man if he walked right past the real thing because he had the picture? He ignored the real thing and said, I got a boy, I got this beautiful picture. Oh, it's so magnificent. That's exactly what the Jews did. The real thing, Jesus was standing there. They had the little pictures of the Old Testament and they were gawking at these pictures as if that's the end. And Jesus is saying, I'm the end, not the picture. But be careful you don't do the same in your study. That you start worshiping the pictures instead of the one who is being pictured. Okay? So the Old Testament is full of types. They always proceed from the historic Truths, the literary truths we find in the Old Testament. Secondly, they, these are the rules here. Central message. We're looking for the central message as a type, not the little details. Third, we find its symbolic meaning in the Old Testament. There's a symbolic meaning that the Jews understood in the Old Testament. They understood that one in Genesis 22 to be that the nation of Israel was put on the altar, but then God swooped in and saved her. Because if Isaac dies, there is no Israel. And they understood, if you read their writings about that text, the rabbis all taught, this is where God first saved our nation, was in Genesis 22, on that mountain. He provided a ram to be sacrificed. So they saw a symbol in it, so we're okay, we can find a symbol in it. Third, we find the, the, the I mean, fourth, we find the, the, the con connection that carries us over as we analyze and go into the New Testament. And then finally, we preach Christ. We don't end preaching the type. We end preaching Christ. Typology is not something to be scared of, but it is something to be careful with. Be careful with it. Quickly, a fourth way is the way of analogy. It's very similar to what we've just done. There's a connection between Israel... God's Old Testament people, and the church, God's New Testament people. And so we're teaching in Deuteronomy, and God tells the nation of Israel a specific command. And in that command, we see that's carried over into the New Testament instruction to the church. And therefore, we can say God has instructed His people from the Old to the New Testament because of Christ. They're in unity with one another. There's no difference. Christ has brought the two groups together. That's the way of analogy. Fifth is the way of longitudinal themes. These are those big highways that I've been talking about earlier. You can look at the glory of God in the Old Testament and trace that all the way to Christ. You can look at the reign of God from the text and trace that to the reign of God in Christ. You can look at the kingdom. You can look at the love of God. You can look at the grace of God. You can look at the wrath of God in a text. You can look at the law. We could go on and on. 
And what you do with those things is you say, here's where the law was presented, and here's how it travels along the historic grid till it gets to Christ. And in Christ, it's fulfilled and applied newly to the new people in this way. And that's the longitudinal theme around of getting to Christ. Sixth, you can look at New Testament references. I was tempted to bring it in here, but there's a new great work by uh, G.K. Bill and D.A. Carson called The New Testament Use of the Old Testament. And it's about this thick, and it goes through every verse in the New Testament and tells you where they're getting their work. The writer of the New Testament quoted or alluded to the Old Testament. It's a wonderful reference to I use it all the time. But you have to be careful here. Because you don't always want to preach or teach what the connection is. Because you, you may not have time to do a good job of it. Okay? Be very careful. Don't overuse this way. Don't be lazy. Find the best way that best fits the moment. Finally is the way of contrast. The seventh way, legitimate road from the Old Testament to the New Testament in Christ is the way of contrast. There's a problem in the Old Testament that is resolved in Christ. The solution is given and it's applied to the church. And so we can move through. We can see there's a problem in the Old Testament. What is the problem? They do not have the presence of God. They've lost the sense of the presence of God in the land of Egypt. That's obvious, isn't it? When Moses goes back, they don't even believe in God that much. Who is God? That's their response. So when God delivers them, is it any, is it any uh, surprise that God's presence is, all, is there immediately? And well, how do we see it? In the burning pillar and the cloud. Right? God's presence with his people, leading them in. The, and so they doubted. They had a problem. They doubted the presence of God with them, and God gave them a symbol of his presence. But it wasn't fulfilled fully there. Then, then how does he show his presence? The tabernacle. And from the tabernacle, the temple. And from the temple, John 1 verse 14. And the word of God became flesh and pitched his tent among us. That's not a mistake. The Old Testament people had a problem. It was they didn't have confidence in the presence of God. So God gave them a tabernacle. And now John's saying the ultimate solution to the problem they had in the Old Testament and the problem that you and I have doubting the presence of God is Jesus Christ, the tabernacle who is among us. That's not a mistake. That's not happenstance. That's not John just, well, let's just call him the tent. No. Jesus isn't off his rocker when he's standing in the temple and walking out tells his disciples, you see these great buildings? You see all this? In three days, I shall tear it down and build it up again. It took our forefathers more than 40 years and we're not even done yet. You're going to do it in three days? But he spoke not to them about the building of the temple, but about what? His body. The problem in the Old Testament was they needed the presence of God, and they, they didn't fully have it. They had a temple. They had a tabernacle. They had a cloud. They had a burning pillar. 
But they needed Christ. Christ is the solution. So we, we can move by way of contrast. There's this deep, dark problem, and it's solved in Jesus. You can do it with the sacrificial system. You can do it with... There's lots of ways. This is legitimate. This is an illegitimate use of the Bible. This is the way the apostles taught the Bible. This is the way the early church taught the Bible. This is the way we should teach the Bible. Okay? I know that's a ton of information. And I know we are out of time. But um, I do want to encourage you, look back through this. And I told I warned you, you may not remember, so let me warn you again. I warned you, you will need a pen. You will need a piece of paper. You cannot hope, you cannot hope to remember this off the top of your head. You must write it down. And the reason you say, why don't you just give it to us? Well, because I had a lot of classes in college where they handed us the notes, the lecture notes, the stack, we used to call it. It was everything that we needed. You know what the problem was? We never looked at it because we never worked for it. The best connections you will ever make in studying about God's Word or studying God's Word or anything else are the connections you make with your hand and your eyes on your piece of paper. It's the best connections ever made. If I just give you my connections... You'll, they'll be lost in the trunk of your car. You go to the trouble of writing, you'll file it away. Okay, so I'm not, I've given you a rough outline, but I want you to fill the outline in. I want you to fill it in, because I really want you to have this when you're done. I want you to be able to use it in your private study, if nowhere else. But I think there's teachers in this room, I think there's preachers in this room, and I think that you will benefit from it.